Well, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good. It's Palm Sunday, and excited to see you here. We survived the storms this e- yesterday or last evening. Uh, we were doing a wedding, and we were out in a tent outdoors. And uh, we uh, literally, un- unfortunately, they, they clo- had to close the, the reception down. And so as we were going home, we opened up our phones and see just what we were, uh, had in store. We got home got into the closet, and the Lord was gracious and protected us all. So glad that you're here, glad that you're safe. It's Palm Sunday. Uh, This is a day where we remember the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And what did they do as he rode into Jerusalem? They laid their jackets down, they laid their cloaks down, they laid their palm palm branches down, and they were doing that to honor and glorify and worship the Lord. They were recognizing that he was fulfilling the the scripture when he wrote in on a cult. In Zechariah 9.9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So several hundred years after that prophecy was written, The Lord decided to fulfill that prophecy, revealing he was the Messiah, riding into Jerusalem, humble and mounted on a donkey, and the people rejoiced and honored him with palm branches. And today, that's what we're doing as well. We're here to worship the Lord, to rejoice and honor him as the Messiah, the fulfillment of scriptures. We've been working through the Gospel of Luke, and we would normally be on chapter 17, but because it's Palm Sunday, we're going to fast forward to chapter 23 this week, and then next week for the resurrection, we'll be in chapter 24. And so we are, we are in a great position to think about the scene that we're going to look at. In Luke 9, 53, Luke recorded this. He said, Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem. And if you've been with us as we've studied the Gospel of Luke, you know that we took that as an opportunity to say, hey, let's put ourselves in the feet of the disciples and let's follow, let's walk along with Jesus from Galilee all the way on his journey towards Jerusalem where we come today in this scene. And so really, if you think about it, Luke says that he wrote his gospel in order for you to have confidence in the Christian message. He was like an investigative journalist. He went and he investigated everything. He investigated the claims of the Christian faith. He, he did the research. He, he, he talked to eyewitnesses and said, tell me exactly what happened. And he says, everything that I'm going to lay out for you in my, in my letters in Luke and in the book of Acts, he says, I have carefully investigated these things, and I want you to know you can count on it. It's true. And so he has put us in a position as readers that we have personally been eyewitnesses of everything that Jesus has said and everything that he has been doing on his journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so we're in a unique position to evaluate this week that we call Holy Week, this Passion Week, this day that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and as he is in Jerusalem, things turn ugly, and we are in a unique position to evaluate what is going down. And so we're going to look at the trials of Jesus, and we're going to be sitting in the juror's box for three different trials that Jesus goes through. And I've been praying all week, and actually a couple of weeks as I've been preparing this message, I've been praying that the Holy Spirit would move powerfully among us this morning. 
that as we are in this unique position to be honest, sincere observers of what is going on in these trials and answer the question, why was Jesus crucified? I pray the Holy Spirit gives you clarity and the courage to deal with it honestly. Let me ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father God, I ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would move powerfully in our hearts. And as we sit in on the trials of Jesus that he was subjected to, would you help us honestly evaluate what happened? Help us to understand why. Why was Jesus crucified? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let me set this up, get the context. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. They are celebrating him, worshiping him. The crowds are laying the palm branches down. And then he has the Last Supper. This is where we get our Lord's Supper. He gathers his disciples. He knows what's about to happen. And he gathers his most intimate disciples and he has supper with them. And he says a key phrase that Luke captures for us. And this is very important. Luke wants us to know, before we head into Passion Week, remember that Jesus said this at that dinner. Jesus said in Luke twenty two thirty seven, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Keep that in mind. So those are key words as we begin the Passion Narratives. Immediately after that, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Then Jesus was betrayed by Peter, as Peter denied him. And Jesus is subjected to a series of three different trials. And that's really where Luke spends a lot of ink on these trials. When you're reading through the Gospels, you can see there's different emphasis in each of the Gospels. And it's always good to ask, now why is Luke recording these portions of the scenes when it's not exactly the same portions that John recorded? And so Luke wants us to notice in particular the trials and certain aspects of these trials. And so let's see if we can figure out what is Luke's point in the way that he records these trials, what is he trying to say about these trials? Why was Jesus crucified? Trial number one is with the Sanhedrin. This is the religious people. The religious rulers, the council, dragged Jesus before them. In Luke 22, verse 66, it says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, then tell us. That's the key question. That's why Jesus is on trial. If you are the Christ, Christ is a Greek word for the Messiah, Hebrew word. If you are the long-awaited, promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God, then tell us. Come on, Jesus, tell us, are you the Christ? As if he hasn't already been telling them. What does Jesus do in response? But Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I tell you, you're not going to believe me anyway. If I ask you, you won't answer. You see, what does this challenge me to do as a reader? It challenges me to say, okay, I'm sitting in this jury box. Jesus is asked, are you the Christ? And he says, well, if I tell you, you're not going to believe. 
what is the writer of Luke wanting you to do? He's wanting you to say, well, am I open to the truth? Will I believe the evidence as it's presented? we got to ask ourselves that question this morning. As we come to the, the trials, am I open to the truth as it's presented? Jesus continues in verse 69, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand, the power of God. He's talking about his future ascension after his resurrection. And so they all said, aha, so are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Another great question that we have to answer in our own hearts today, is he the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one that God promised to send to save his people? Is he the Son of God? And they're like putting it back on him. So, you mentioned Son of Man, we know that's a messianic title. Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said to them, you say that I am. Now that's what kept jumping out at me this week as I read these trials, actually the last couple of weeks, studying these trials. And Luke seems to basically just said, let the words of the accusers make their own case against themselves. Jesus is like, I don't really have to say anything. I'm just going to sit back and let your own words speak for themselves. And by the end of these trials, it becomes crystal clear and Jesus has basically said nothing. He says, you say that I am. And so I think Luke wants us to pay very careful attention to the words of the accusers. What they say about Jesus. As Jesus sits quietly in Luke's account and says virtually nothing. In verse 71, then they said, well, what further testimony do we need? I, just think about that sentence. The accusers, well, what further testimony do we need to know the truth? Answer, none. You don't need further testimony. Now, that's not how they meant it. What they are saying is what further testimony do we need than to prove your guilt? But as honest, open-minded, looking at the truth, what further testimony do they need than to see, of course he's the Son of God, of course he's the Messiah. Look what he's been doing. Look what he's been saying on his journey to Jerusalem. Of course, you don't need any more testimony, but they say, we have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Do you hear the conviction against them? You know the truth. You've heard it from his own lips. Why are you still asking these questions? I think what we see, the reason why our first lesson from these trials, from our first trial, is they are preconditioned against the truth. These Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they are preconditioned against the truth. Everyone knows the truth. Even their own words reveal they know the truth. They know he's claimed to be the Messiah. They know he has claimed to be the Son of God. They know his actions indicate it. And yet, everything that they're saying and everything that they're doing has been predetermined. Their hearts are preconditioned against hearing the truth. They just want him crucified. That's what I want to ask you today. As you sit and you hear God's word this morning, as you see the clear evidence about Jesus, are you preconditioned against the truth? Is your heart really unwilling to even receive the truth if it's laid before you? 
Are you willing to accept the evidence that Luke has carefully investigated and set before us to say he's the Messiah, but are you preconditioned against this truth? That's the first lesson of the first trial. So what do they do? Well, in verses 1 through 5 of the next chapter, 23, we see they, the Sanhedrin sends them over to Pilate. This is trial number 2. Now, look at verse 1. It says, Then the whole company of them arose, and they brought Jesus before Pilate. Pilate is the Roman, so now we're in kind of the political trial. This is the, the political Rome has a governor over each territory, and Pilate is the governor over Jerusalem. And they begin, the religious rulers accused to Pilate, they begin to accuse Jesus saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now, wait a minute. We've been walking with Jesus since Galilee. Anybody seen that? You're in the trial, you're in the jury box going, I, I was at those, I've walked with Jesus. I never heard Jesus forbid them to give tribute to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now we say, yeah, I do, I do remember that. He opened up Isaiah's scrolls and he sat down and he said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He made it clear he was claiming to be that Messiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. But what we see they are doing is they are intentionally trying to to upset Pilate. They said, he's claiming to be Christ. He's claiming to be a king, Pilate. They're basically accusing Jesus of trying to do an insurrection. Why are they doing this? Why are they twisting the facts? Why? Because they are preconditioned against the truth and they have one agenda in mind. I'm going to get Jesus crucified and that is an offense worthy of crucifixion. If you are trying to do an insurrection against the, the head of Rome, you deserve to be punished on a cross. So it's a flat out lie trying to do nothing but crucify Jesus. Verse 3, and Pilate asked Jesus, listen to his words again, Pilate's words, are you king of the Jews? This time Jesus answered, you say. Now our translation says, you have said so, but it's literally two Greek words, or in Greek it's translated two words. You say. It's kind of like, it's kind of like saying, hmm, hmm, you say. It's a non-answer. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm just going to sit back, listen to your own words. You say, king of the Jews. You say, the Christ. You say the Son of God. Let's just listen to what you say. And so as we read these texts, these trial scenes, that's what we need to do. Listen carefully to what they say. In verse 4, Luke records some key words out of Pilate's mouth. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Out of the mouth of Pilate comes the obvious truth. Anyone who's been walking with Jesus knows this already. Anyone who is sincerely open to the facts knows this already. And so Pilate states the obvious out of his own mouth, his own words. What you say, Pilate, is, I find no guilt in this man. 
However, Luke tells us, but the Jewish leaders were urgent in their hardened hearts. They had their agenda. They were urgent saying, well, he stirs up people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. Again, is that true? Is that what he's been doing? Now, they got stirred up all right, but was he stirring them up? Was he causing this problem? Was he causing insurrection? Was he trying to cause problem? What was he doing? He was saying, love your neighbor. Treat your neighbor with kindness and grace. Don't have these poor and marginalized. Don't just ignore them. Care for them. Love them. Be merciful. Be gracious. Be kind. Reach out beyond the walls of your religious structures and take the gospel. Take the kingdom of justice and love and mercy to the poor and the oppressed. Oh, they got upset. But that's on them. Jesus had a glorious message. He is the Christ the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy was to preach the good news to the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, not just the powerful. And we know it. We saw it. We heard it with our own eyes and ears. What did he do when he walked around? What did he do with his power? What did he do? He healed people. He healed the sick. He cast demons out of people who were riddled with demons and they were oppressed. He set the captives free. You saw it. You were there. I saw it with my own eyes. I was there. Luke has taken us there and shown us and recorded it all for us to see. And here we sit, listening to this trial, having to evaluate what is going on. So what did Pilate do? Verse 6, when Pilate heard this, when he heard what? When he heard them say, well... He's been doing this from Galilee. He says, oh, Galilee. Well, now, wait a minute. Are you from Galilee? Yeah. Oh, well, then you need to go see Herod. And so he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, which is Galilee, he sent him over to Herod, who himself happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. So what is going on here? What do you think when you see Pilate and the way he's handling these situations? I see a man who's preoccupied. Whereas the Jewish religious people were, had predetermined, they were preconditioned to reject Jesus. They had it mind made up. He only threatens our structure. He only threatens our traditions. He only threatens us. They had made their mind up. They were not willing to hear the truth. They were preconditioned to reject him. Here we see Pilate, a politician who's preoccupied. I don't have time for this guy. Oh, he's from Galilee. Send him over to Herod. Now, this is the same guy, Pilate, who in John's gospel, when Jesus mentioned the word truth, Pilate said, what is truth? Yeah, who knows truth? I don't have time for all of this. He's all preoccupied with his career, with his status, with his political agenda. He doesn't have time to take these matters seriously. What about you? Are you too preoccupied with your career? Raising your children, your hobbies, entertainment? Are you too preoccupied to consider the most important question in history? 
What do you do with Jesus? He knows the truth, but he's too preoccupied to be responsible with his truth. He says, I find no guilt in this man, but you know what? Send him over to Herod. I don't want to deal with it. I've got better things to deal with. So we've seen the Jews were preconditioned. We see Pilate was preoccupied. Let's see what Herod does. In verse 8, we see third trial before Herod. In verse 8, it says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Ah, I've been wanting to see this guy, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. Oh, yeah, he had heard about him, all right. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Are you kidding me? This dude's life is on the line. And he's just playing games. He's like, seriously, I just want to see you do a sign. Do something cool. I've heard you've done some really impressive miracles. Do a sign for me. Oh, Herod had heard of this guy. You see, Herod, this Herod, who is this guy? Herod is the guy who cut off the head of John the Baptist to please his, his wife, just to entertain his wife, her, her, her whim. Cut his head off. This is the kind of guy this guy is. Herod's dad is Herod the Great. Who is Herod the Great? It gets confusing all these Herods. The staff, we were like, wait, which Herod is this? Herod the Great, this guy's dad, is the one that when he heard that a supposed king of the Jews was being born in Bethlehem, he said, kill all the boys. Kill them all. That's this guy's dad. So this guy comes from a long tradition of bias against Jesus. He's not trying to determine the truth. He's just like, show me a sign. Do something cool. So he questioned him, verse 9. So he questioned him at some length. So he questions him for a long time, but Jesus made no answer. Why is that? Because Jesus knows Herod is a pretender. Herod's a pretender. He's a player. He's just playing games. He's not sincere. And what we see here is Jesus does not reveal himself to people who do not seriously, sincerely want to know the truth. He doesn't play games. If you're a pretender and you're just playing games and you're going through the motions and you're just trying to do it for show to make everyone happy and you're going through this long series of actions just to pretend you want to know the truth when in your heart you know, I don't care about the truth. I just want to see him do a, shot, do a sign, do something for me. And Jesus says, I don't have any answers to that. I don't answer to that. Herod's a pretender. He's a player. He's playing games. It challenges us to say, are you just here today to pretend? He's doing it for show? Or are you sincerely seeking to know the truth about Jesus? So look at verse 10. We see Herod's true colors come out. It says the chief priests and the scribes stood by. So these religious rulers are still there in this trial scene between Jesus and Herod. And they are vehemently accusing Jesus. They asked the question, or, or Pilate asked the question, a series of questions at some length, and they're like, come on, just crucify him. He's guilty, and they're vehemently accusing Jesus. And Herod with his soldiers just pleased the crowd. They don't care about the truth. 
And so they start to treat him with contempt, and they mocked him. They arrayed him in splendid clothing, mocking him like he's some kind of king, and they sent him back to Pilate. He was never interested in knowing the truth. In verse 12, we see this disgusting convalescence of friends. Herod and Pilate become friends with each other that very day before they had been in enmity with each other. So they find a common bond. And so you have this community of the preconditioned against Jesus, the preoccupied who don't want to deal with Jesus, and the pretenders who are just pretending. And that is a picture of society and those who have no time for Jesus and his claims. They're all united in their opposition against Jesus. And we as readers are forced, where do I fall in this scene? Who am I going to align myself with? As we ponder this, the condition of our own heart, am I preconditioned to even not even hear the truth? Am I just playing games? Where am I? Then it's time for the verdict. Look at verse 13. Now I want you to listen carefully to their own words as the sentence comes down. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And he said to them, hey, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. There's the truth. I didn't find anything. I, I, he's not guilty. And guess what? Neither did Herod. Verse 15, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. And Jesus hasn't said a word. The truth speaks for itself. It's plain for everyone to see. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is innocent. But what does Pilate say after he says this, that he's innocent? He says, I will therefore punish him. Are you kidding me? What is going on? He just said, we've all investigated it. And it's very clear. He's innocent. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to punish him. And then I'm going to let him go. This is a joke. This is a sham. But it gets worse. Look at chapter 23, verse 18. But the Jews cry out together. It's like the crowd that was worshiping him, that was excited to see his arrival, that was waving the palm branches, have, have just been so easily swayed by the, the leaders of the Sanhedrin and now they all are crying together away with this man and release to us Barabbas Barabbas who is Barabbas verse 19 Luke says Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection started in the city and for murder what He's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. We don't care. Crucify him and give us Barabbas, who is absolutely guilty, known convict, guilty for everything that we've made up about Jesus. Crucify the innocent and release the guilty. 
And Jesus has not opened his mouth. What is going on here? Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more as if it's not clear enough. He wanted to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We don't have ears for what you have to say. Just crucify him. A third time, he said to them, why? A third time. Anything that's in the, gospel, in the scriptures three times is a settled matter. Why? He's innocent. He's innocent. He's innocent. What evil has he done? I found no, in him no guilt-deserving death. Why would you crucify him? And that's the question. Why? But again, in order to appease them, he says, okay, I'll therefore punish him, but then I'm going to release him. In verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. They got what they wanted. Verse 24, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released Barabbas. The man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. For whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Luke 23, 32 says very concisely. And when they came to the place that is called the skull. There they crucified him. What? A sham. It's the greatest sham trial of the history of humanity. Trumped up charges by religious leaders preconditioned against the truth, predetermined what they wanted. Deflection by a political leader too preoccupied to deal with these matters. And a political pretender enslaved to the will of the people. So what happens? Guilty Barabbas is set free. The innocent God-man is crucified. So I ask you, what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this? What in the world is going on? Why did the innocent God-man die and the guilty be set free? Jesus already told us at the Lord's Supper before all this started. Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. remember what he said? I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes Isaiah 53 a passage that had been written hundreds and hundreds of years before. 
And he quoted from there. It says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Remember that. He was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Why was Jesus crucified? Because they, it was their will. They got what they wanted. But why was Jesus crucified? To fulfill the scriptures. So here's what I want to do. I want to read to you the entire Isaiah 53 passage. And I invite you to listen to the extraordinary detailed description of the crucifixion that was written hundreds and hundreds of years before the actual event. And I challenge you to examine your heart. Don't be preconditioned against the truth. Don't predetermine your result here. Open yourself to hear it. Don't be so preoccupied with anything that you don't really have time to think about the consequential decision. What do I do with these facts about Jesus? And don't pretend. Don't play games. I pray you'll sincerely open yourself up to hear the truth. I invite you to either close your eyes or just draw a circle around yourself and just invite the Holy Spirit to show you the truth. As I read what God said must take place. Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep before the shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why? Why was the innocent Messiah crucified? Because God crushed him for you and for me. You see, when we read the story, we're actually not the ones in the jury box. We're Barabbas. We're guilty of everything that he died for. We've rebelled against the king. And he was crushed for us. Do you have ears to hear this message? Are you preconditioned against it? Are you preoccupied? Are you pretending? Or will you trust Christ to set you free? Father God, I pray that we will hear what you have to say. That we will see and identify ourselves as Barabbas. Deserving to be punished for our sin. But to fulfill the scriptures, you crushed your son, Jesus Christ. That his blood and his body might be the sacrifice that we need to reconcile us to you. To declare us not guilty innocent as a gift of grace that we might be set free. I pray that you will work in our hearts this morning and set people free all over this room by your gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.